Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. What kind of legacy does the late Colin Powell leave behind? Let's get to the bottom line. The United States lost one of its most legendary military and diplomatic leaders last week. Regardless of how history judges Colin Powell, one thing is clear. He was an exceptional man who had a storied life and beat the odds to become one of America's most influential shapers of national security. He was one of the first black men in American history to become a four-star general, and he was the first black American to become Secretary of State, serving under President George W. Bush. In that position, one of his main jobs was to make the case for the Iraq War in 2003, especially since at that time he was one of America's most trusted leaders. He did his job loyally, but later regretted it, although he did stop short of admitting that his famous speech at the United Nations was packed with a lot of lies. After the war, he left the Bush administration and he became known as a voice of moderation in the Republican Party until the very end. And he endorsed Democrats Barack Obama in 2008 and Joe Biden last year. So what was he? Was he a pawn in a much bigger game? Was he a national hero or a loyal soldier or a brilliant statesman? Today, we're talking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Karen DeYoung, who's a veteran reporter and editor for The Washington Post. And she's the author of the biography, Soldier, The Life of Colin Powell, tracking him from his childhood in the Bronx till his life after the White House. Karen, it's great to be with you today. Let me just open up with a question and ask why you chose Colin Powell. What drove you? What was the spark at that moment? And said, wow, this is the person I want to profile when you wrote this biography uh, many years ago. I think the, one of the most interesting things to me was that he uh, came, rose up in the world at a particular point in American history with the confluence of a lot of things, um, the civil rights movement, the desegregation of the military, um, the, uh, you know, immigrant parents, um, the, uh, the uh, ability of people who came from a background such as his, who went to a, a sort of populist college, not Ivy League by any stretch. Um, and he, you know, he used all of that. And uh, he had the intelligence and the, the manner uh, to use it. And so he, he was a guy who was in the right place at the right time at many junctures in his history, but also had the personality and the intellect and the ambition to, to utilize that. Now, I don't know exactly how to ask this, but I know that, that uh, I know him as General Powell or Secretary Powell, so it's interesting. Colin Powell, when he joined the Army, he joined right after it became desegregated. And, and I'm always interested in whether or not, at that moment, whether he began to rise above the racism uh, and division that used to exist in the military, or whether he became the star token uh, to, so where other leaders were trying to show that they were, in fact, trying not to be as racist as they were. Do you have any sense of that? I, I think, arguably, it's both of those things. Um, I think that he, uh, you know, the, Harry Truman desegregated the military officially in 1948, but there were still black-only units hmm. uh, up until the mid-'50s, actually. Uh, when Powell came in, um, you know, it was at the beginning of the 60s, and I think that there was no official segregation in the military. But he, he once said something that I think he meant in a sort of sarcastic way, 
which was, uh, I ain't that black, he said. You know, he was relatively light-skinned. He grew up um, not in an African-American community, but in an inter-immigrant community. And he could, he could exist in a lot of different worlds. And so I think he was well aware of the fact that white people and white people of power felt safe around him, if I can, can use that word. And, and again, whatever one might say about his race and his attitude to his race and attitudes toward his race by others, um, he was consistently very good at what he did. Uh, and therefore, he made it easy for people around him to want to promote him. What was the moment, I guess, what was the breakout moment for Colin Powell? What was the moment that everyone said, aha, we want to make him uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We want to make him national security advisor. We want to consider, we want to make him secretary of state. We want to consider him, and I mean, people may not recall this, but he was a potential candidate for president of the United States running in a third party or as an independent. And I remember President Bush's team being nervous about that prospect. Yeah, I think that he, uh, you know, it was sort of a gradual thing where he basically succeeded in a series of um, uh, the usual sort of stops along the line for military promotion and was probably promoted faster than others. He had a very good record in, in Vietnam. He was wounded. He rescued his commanding officer from death. Um, and so... By the time he uh, was, uh, he w went to went to George Washington University and got a master's degree there, um, and he uh, then applied to be a White House fellow, and that took him into the upper, essentially his first step out of the military hierarchy and into the bigger political world. He was uh, assigned as a White House fellow to the Office of Management and Budget wouldn't seem a natural fit for him, but that's nevertheless where he ended up. And he, um, his boss was Caspar Weinberger, who was the head of that agency at the time. And the other person high up there was Frank Carlucci. And so when Weinberger became uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, Secretary of Defense, he thought of bringing Powell, still in the military, to be his, his mili chief military aide. Every Secretary of Defense has a a mid-level officer who, who is his, essentially, for day-to-day -day life, his liaison for the military, his, his eyes and ears in the military. And so um, he, he became very close to Weinberger. He was very astute politically. Um, and uh, by the time that uh, Carlucci became Reagan's secretary of state and was looking for someone to be his deputy, he went back to Powell and said, come and be my deputy. Um, uh, Carlucci later left that office, and, Reagan, and Powell became Reagan's sixth and last national security advisor, and I think acquitted himself well. Um, he was still uh, a military officer on, on a hiatus from the military, and that was sort of an unusual thing. But I think that he was seen as someone who sort of, at a, at a time when Reagan was, <clears throat> in the view of many people, kind of starting to lose it a little bit, Powell kept him on the straight and narrow and was viewed as kind of keeping that institution, um, not afloat at that time, but just keeping it organized. You know, he's a very 
was a very organized guy. Um, he kept the National Security Council very organized. Um, and, you know, meetings started on time. Options were presented to the president, and things worked the way, theoretically, they were supposed to work. So after he finished that, uh, he went back into the military and had several commands. Um, and then when, um, when uh, George Bush Sr. was president and he was looking for uh, someone to, to uh, be his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it was actually Dick Cheney who had, who had suggested, uh, Dick Cheney, who was the defense secretary at the time, suggested Powell, which required Powell to jump over several other four-star generals. Uh, he was the most junior at the time. Uh, and, uh, and then there he was. And of course, then the Persian Gulf War came out, which is where Powell really became known to, to the American people. You know, he was the guy standing at the easel at the press conferences every day. He was the guy speaking in crisp um, military language, all of which he learned in military schools, where he excelled in briefing, which is actually a skill right. uh, with the military. Well, like another dimension of, of Secretary Powell was his time uh, overseeing and working on conflicts. And so one of these was the first Iraq War. Uh, and then you had later the second Iraq War. During the first Iraq War uh, on the team with President George H.W. Bush, he was, a, he was largely a hero of that, along with other, other generals sort of looking at it and then, and, then, and then pulling out U.S. forces. When then later the second Iraq War came in after 9-11 and, you know, the debate in 2003, um, George W. Bush um, brought him into that, and I think it's one of the most controversial moments in, in Colin Powell's life was being used to sell that war, to sell that war to allies, to sell that war to the American public, because he had evolved as one of the most trusted Americans in the world. And I'm just interested if you ever talked with him deeply about that moment in which we now know in hindsight the material that he presented at the United Nations was deeply flawed, deeply wrong, that they'd been duped by a, an intelligence source named Curveball. I'd be interested in, in what your thoughts are about that. that I don't, I'm trying to still figure out how this guy became such a pawn in that moment. Well, I, I, let me go back just a little bit to when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, which was under Bush Sr., George H.W. Right. Bush. Um, that's when he, as I said, first came sort of to national prominence. Um, and he, that was where he was known for what, what came to be called the Powell Doctrine, which was, if you're going to go into a war, go big, make sure you know what your mission is and what, what your exit strategy is, mm -hmm. uh, and really have the support of the and, and the body politic of the United States. So I think that, that years later, when uh, he became, uh, when George Bush, George W. Bush, went to him as Secretary of State, it was no secret that, that Bush, uh, one of his liabilities in his campaign was that he didn't know much about foreign policy or national security. And so uh, Powell, who at the time, as you said, was really the, uh, in polls for years, was the most admired person in the United States. Um, and he um, brought Powell in on the, his campaign trail, really, to sort of give him sort of foreign policy credibility. But Powell was not part of the inner circle. Hmm. He was not part of this group known as the Vulcans, who were basically uh, Rumsfeld, Cheney, Condi Rice, 
uh, Paul Wolfowitz. And so Powell came, began as an outlier, and his role was very different than it had been when he was a, a general. He was the diplomat. Uh, he was not in the Pentagon. He was not making military strategies. So as the Bush administration started to, in the summer of 2002, started to make its plans for um, invading uh, Iraq, he went to Bush uh, and he said, look, you know, I've looked at the plan for this. I don't, I don't think it's right. I don't think you have enough troops, and I don't think you should do it unless you have support, mm -hmm. not only from the American public, but from our allies, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, to do it. Um, and so he, he did persuade uh, Bush to take it to the United Nations, to the Security Council, and try to get, try to get support uh, where, where uh, Powell was not very successful. Uh, the Brits certainly were on board, but, but not many others were. But none of the none of the big players uh, in the European in the European alliance, except for Britain at that point. And so they they were worried. They they wanted a UN resolution to support the invasion. And so in January of 2003, they said, "Wait a minute." Here we've got this incredibly popular guy. Um, if we send him to the United Nations uh, and and make the case, people will believe him. Uh, you know, Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush and Rice had been talking for months about mushroom clouds and weapons of mass destruction, and they weren't getting a whole lot of traction on it. But the decision was that Powell was the most credible uh, sort of weapon they had. Um, and uh, called Powell in and said, we want you to do this. And, you know, Powell's a, a chain of command guy. He agreed to do it, but said, I, you know, I will say what I want to say, and I will examine the, the evidence. Uh, Cheney's folks sent over a script for him to read, and he thought it was completely over the top. It was every bit of questionable and ambiguous evidence they had all put in the worst possible light. And Powell and his team went over to the to the CIA and sat there for several days. I mean, they only had about two weeks to organize this whole thing and, and cut it back a lot. Um, and Powell, I think, felt like he had done due diligence. Uh, he had come up with a speech for which the evidence was very solid. And he went to the Security Council and he gave this speech and uh, didn't convince too many Europeans who were against it, uh, particularly France, that was running the Security Council at the time. But it did, by and large, convince the American public, editorial writers across the country, um, people who were had been very opposed. Uh, Mary McGrory, great liberal columnist for The Washington Post, the next day wrote a column and said, well, I was against this. I didn't believe the Bush administration. But I do believe Colin Powell. And um, if Powell says it, it must be true. And so, of course, they invaded and went to war. And um, once they had pretty much taken over Iraq, by the end of 2003, all the inspectors and the U.S. military did not find any weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they did not find any biological weapons laboratories. Uh, they did not find hidden stores of uranium um, and plans to build nuclear weapons. They did not find ties between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, all of which had been 
had been part of the, the case that Powell presented. And I think that he uh, did what few people in the political realm would do, which is to come out and say, this was wrong. I, I was wrong. Uh, he never said I lied, uh, because he didn't believe he had lied. Mm. He believed that he had presented what was given to him, and again, what he had done, due diligence and examining. Um, it turned out that there was a lot of skepticism at some levels in the CIA, in the State Department, and those were never pursued. Oh. And they were so convinced of what they wanted to do that, um, oh. you know, it's hard to say people were lying, but they believed what they set out to believe in the first right. place. Well, I remember that time. I remember when Richard Pearl came out after Colin Powell uh, convinced President Bush to take this to the United Nations. Richard Pearl, who was a very leading defense intellectual and a very strong uh, uh, presence in Republican uh, circles, um, called him a traitor, a traitor to the United States. And I, and I know that during that time, we also saw afterward many Americans, um, you know, and, and many people around the world saw Colin Paul Powell after that gesture as part of the machine that led to this. Many called him a war criminal, uh, in fact, after this. And I, and I would often argue in these things, I said, you know, he, he was not in the same boat as some of those that crafted this. But I know his chief of staff, I know his deputy, both with it. But I guess my question is, as he digested it later, one of my criticisms of Colin Powell at the time, and I wonder where you're at, was I was surprised he was silent for so long, that it took him a while to say uh, that he regretted that and that it had been wrong. And it raises the interesting question of whether we should have generals in that role of Secretary of State. Was some principle in this great man lost because he couldn't resign at that moment or he didn't speak out after he was secretary, that he was still playing the general, but not the, 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 the person, the civil servant, if you will, um, who, who's supposed to offer his advice, supposedly to be loyal to the president of the United States, but at the same time not lie to the American public. Well, again, I, I'm not sure I do totally disagree with, uh, totally agree with you. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't think he believed and, and never believed that he had lied. Hmm. He believed that he was misinformed, that, that he was lied to, mm. um, and that, that, you know, if you want to say that, that then continuing that lie made him a liar, mm. I guess technically it does, but I don't think he saw it that way. Um, I, th I think that he did fairly soon, certainly in 2004, when he was still Secretary of State, he said, uh, much to the dismay of the of the Bush administration, and I believe this was even in 2003, said, look, if I knew then what I knew now, should we have gone to war? I don't think so. Um, you know, and, and as the evidence came out, uh, there were various investigations, you know, the Senate did an investigation, uh, the military did an investigation, and I think that as those things came out, he, uh, you know, perhaps he didn't say it strongly enough for you and some others. You know, he said, I, you know, I regret this. I know it will always be a blot on my record. Um, you know, um, I, but I, well, yeah, again, yeah. He, he didn't believe that he had lied consciously. You know, j just as, you know, to, to in part wrap up a, a discussion about his life and role, another thing he did, and I haven't seen many raise this, but he was very, very important in creating the, um, I don't know what to call it, the infrastructure, the, the track 
that got the Amer American military to reverse Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is the service of gay, uh, lesbian, transgendered people in the U.S. military by overseeing a study with, with former Senator Sam Nunn and through Don't Ask, Don't Tell, creating again, this is after the Iraq war, but lending his legitimacy to a process under President Obama that ended one of my views, one of the most outrageous uh, uh, barriers to service in the United States military. And he did do that. And I'm just interested in, in that moment, too, because that's where he really did try to change the turn, you know, change the tide so, so dramatically. And I think he became part, I think he became eventually proud of where that went. Well, you know, one of the, one of the raps against Powell is that he was, in many ways, the author of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Hmm. Right. Uh, he was when he was chair when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, into the Clinton administration, Clinton was under a lot of pressure from both sides, um, certainly by some Democrats in Congress, to uh, to eliminate the ban on on homosexuals being in the military. Um, he was under equal pressure inside the military, and I think Clinton was sort of stuck in the middle and and had a lot of irons in the fire at that point and didn't want to offend uh, conservatives in Congress and didn't want to offend the military. I think it's no accident that if you look at the senior people in the Bush administration, uh, the first Bush administration, um, who were seen right. viewed rightfully as responsible for what became the debacle in, in Iraq, uh, Powell was rehabilitated by far more than anyone else. I think that he, uh, you know, when he left government, I mean, Bush basically discarded him at the end of the first administration and had Andy Card, his chief of staff, call him up and say, never mind, we don't need you anymore. Right. Um, you know, can we have your resignation letter tomorrow? Um, so, uh, you know, he spent the rest of his life um, working on things like this, uh, don't ask, don't tell, uh, um, Commission. He uh, went around the world and around the country giving speeches on, on leadership, American values, the military. Uh, at virtually every stop, he would go to the local Boys and Girls Club or some other uh, organization that dealt with troubled youth. That was a, became a very big part of his life. Right. As I said, he started the Policy Institute at City College in New York, which is still which is still growing very strong. And I think that at the end of the day, um, more than anyone else, certainly in that administration, he did, he did redeem himself. And, and when, he, when he died, was, was uh, pretty admired in yeah. the American public. Well, Karen DeYoung, associate editor at The Washington Post and biographer of the late Secretary of State Colin Powell, I really appreciate these insights into his character and how he mattered. You're very welcome. So what's the bottom line? What a mixed legacy that Colin Powell leaves behind. When he retired from the military after the first Gulf War, he was one of the most trusted people in America. The son of Jamaican immigrants was also an inspiration to countless young men, not just black Americans. So why did he lend his credibility to folks like Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and others who took advantage of 9-11 to launch an endless war with Iraq, a war that continues till today, with hundreds of thousands of innocent lives lost? Books could be written about the possible motives. Suffice to say that he didn't walk out and he didn't stand up to the president when he needed to, if that's what he believed. 
But in other points in his career, like in his work on Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military, he did stand up for what he believed. Either way, he did matter. We're going to debate how for many years to come. And that's the bottom line.